Check, 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 one, two, and we are live from the Dispatches from the Scandamaniac podcast. I am your host, as always, Captain Ryland Johnson. Um, before we get into today's episode, a little reflection. Uh, the last two episodes I did were uh, Sam Gamble and Jimmy Thompson. And I really like these episodes as contrasts because both are extremely knowledgeable people. Jimmy is, you know, editor of the Narwhal, writes amazing environmental journalism. Sam Gamble writes these great edge pieces about the economic realities of Yellowknife. And yet they both kind of like Jimmy approaches things from like, uh, well, they both approach things from this lens of like, what is actually happening here? Let's step out and apply kind of a distant assessment of it. But I would say Sam is coming from a typical conservative lens. And I mean that like small C conservative as in, you know, okay, we have this, what can we do to kind of slowly move it along? And then Jimmy at times comes off of this more like, what the hell is happening here? We need to completely <laughs> readjust all of this. But they, uh, they're, they're kind of neat art, uh, episodes to listen to together because they uh, are both extremely intelligent people dissecting things at this very large level. Um, they're also the two most policy-heavy episodes I've done to date. Um, largely the show has been about just interviewing people and uh i think it's a reflection of you know running for office that i am non-stop talking about politics now and so those episodes are a reflection of that uh today's guest is uh kate reed kate welcome to the podcast hi ryland <laughs> um kate so can you uh do us a favor and ring the ship's bell to get us started Still uh, a good smack yeah that was really lame. Yeah, I think, yeah that was, I think it'll show up in the mic. It's not like... <laughs> oh, I, I smacked it with my hand. I didn't know where to smack. <laughs> Sorry, Bill. Yeah. Um, all right, Kate. So, well, I, I guess maybe we'll start with how we know each other. We yeah. originally met uh, working for Environment and Natural Resources. Did we know each other before that? Like. No, we didn't. I knew you as someone who was heavily involved in Dead North, but I didn't really know who you were. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I kind of just knew you because as a woman about town, aware of many hats. (laughs) As long as it wasn't a woman of the night, then we're cool. (laughs) Yeah. Um, All right. So, Kate, maybe you can start with... uh, Well, I always ask people to give us their Yellowknife bio, but I feel like your Yellowknife bio is pretty large but we'll, we'll, we'll just start in chronological order uh, where were you born when did you come north <laughs> all right i was born in <laughs> oshawa ontario which is for folks who may not be aware the seat of gm in canada yep. but my family was not involved in gm um my parents are from north of ottawa and near kingston respectfully they met at queen's uh, I guess lived in Toronto for a while together and I showed up maybe a little less than a decade after they got married and um, yeah you know one of those idyllic childhood not really a picket fence but definitely sort of a you know suburban feel of a big city and then the recession hit so we came north in 89 and I've been here pretty much ever since um yeah, and so how old were you when you moved north? Uh, just before I turned eight, so I was seven. Yeah, okay, yeah. so. Yeah. You're basically your whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, and so, Kate, maybe we can talk a little bit about, well, okay, let's continue in chronological order. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, the easiest. Um, 
So you moved to Yellowknife, you're about eight years old. Um, what are your kind of earliest memories of that time? Do you have this like contrast of like, oh, wow, where am I now? It's really cold. Do you have that memory or is that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely have those memories. I, um, I mean, like most people, I think a lot of childhood just blurs into like one big blob, but I have very distinct memories of um, playing um near Mildred Hall, a friend's house um, down um, on Dakota Court, if you're familiar where that is, yeah. and um, and loving like the endless sunlight. I remember that very clearly. That's one of my earliest memories because we got here around Canada Day. Yeah. And then I have a very distinct memory of walking to Brownies about a 10 minute walk from my parents' house to Sisson's and it was like with the wind chill, it was like minus 65 or something. (laughs) (laughs) And I had never experienced that before in my life and it was very disconcerting, but um, I got used to it pretty quickly. Um, (laughs) It's funny that I've never actually just gone through like an interview where I'm just like, okay, let's carry on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we're trying something different. Sure. Um, okay. And then can you kind of describe what, I mean, I, I'm always curious because, you know, we think about childhood and we think about reflecting on these memories and it's like your lens is clouded. Of course. Um, but looking back, like, were you happy being raised in Yellowknife? Were you happy being a teenager here? Or were you like, I want to graduate and get the hell out of this place? I think everybody who grows up here has that feeling. I mean, not everybody, maybe, but a lot of people. And I think it has to do with the fact that um, Yellowknife is kind of unique in the sense that because we're so isolated and especially before you know there was a sense of of real isolation um before the bridge was built um at least six weeks in the summer or sorry in the spring and and fall um and you're also a kid growing up like pre-internet no i mean i it's weird i actually was on the internet before a lot of my peers were so i remember all of the monster noises out of a 40 14.4 modem (laughs) (laughs) um but uh yeah i don't know it was it was it's very much uh you're on a desolate deserted island mentality with a bunch of weirdos (laughs) um at least for me i was an only child i wasn't super popular until maybe mid high school I got to be having more friends but for the first five six years of my life here I was fairly isolated socially and you know Yellowknife feels fairly isolated geographically so it it was it was definitely um something where I spent a lot of my time reading I spent a lot of time actually on the internet as like a preteen um seeing what the rest of the world was like and wanting to experience it so but conversely and i don't know if i've ever mentioned this to you before um as soon as i went away to school i realized i didn't want to live in a in a city and it was very 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 poignant the second time i went to school i went to grad school and i i yearned to be back in Yellowknife every single day so um and then i i get and when you came here can you talk kind of about like Yellowknife you grew up in versus Yellowknife you live in now. I mean, oh, when you moved here, it was yeah. still very much a mining town. Very much, yeah. I grew up, um, I mean, I experienced the giant mine disaster, right? Yeah. Um, I experienced kids beating each other up on the playground because of who their parents were. Um, 
and feeling strangely removed from it because like my parents weren't involved in mining but everybody like not everybody but a lot of people were and it felt like you were stuck in some kind of really strange television show that wasn't quite real yeah yeah um i remember the explosion happened the day before my birthday in 1991 and it was the weirdest birthday party i've ever had and i probably ever will have because everyone was very morose i'm not really sure why we kept the party going i guess my parents didn't want to disappoint me but um that was a weird day that was just like we're trying to be happy and nobody's wow, happy. Wow, the, the, the imagery <laughs> of like a child's birthday post the bombing is just like oh yeah. Wow. Um. Okay, and then so I mean, at the time, obviously, um, you had all of that scrabble with between the unionized workers and the replacement workers, and at the same time, right, it's, it's, it was a hard time financially for the city, for the territory, before the diamond mines came on board in the late 90s, um, there was a, there, like, the entire time I was in high school, it was sort of a fiscally tight time for everybody, it seemed like the only people who had the extras were government workers and who could go to Edmonton to get their school supplies and weren't they fancy and I yeah. was not one of those kids so uh, <clears throat> okay so I mean obviously Yellowknife has changed in so many ways it's but... a lot more cosmopolitan yeah can you, can you kind of dissect that now like what is Yellowknife now like And but there's clearly still something continuous obviously mm-hmm. in any culture municipal or city ethos i'll say um, mm-hmm. because you even describe leaving several different points in time you mm-hmm. know where the city evolves as that but you feel its drawback why why do you think that is like what do you think is oh without sounding too witchy about it <laughs> yeah well no I, I always try to like unpack what is community like what is the thing actually you know that so it's digs it's, your nails it's it's, it's several things it's several things so for me um and it's something i'm still exploring and coming to grips with what it means to me but the land here speaks to me on a fundamental gut level that i can't really put into words um when i'm out um just even hiking through quieter parts of the city it's 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 a friend it's a companion um and it's hard to explain that to people who have never been here um i don't know if you've experienced that yourself well there's like a reason i live on this boat and i paddle every day the the secret to houseboaters is like like halfway through your paddle like your anxiety drops and i just like i put my hands in great slave lake and then i do this little exercise of like i picture this water going you know it takes about 60 years to reach the arctic ocean like i picture it slowly moving down the Mackenzie, and it's just i don't know and and perhaps that's just uh and I think you could maybe find that anywhere, and but it's perhaps the isolation or the direct connection to kind of the natural world, or you know, that mm-hmm. is so much more apparent in Yellowknife. Well, for example, I mean, it's not just Yellowknife; it's the Northwest Territories. Last year, I was lucky enough to go to Gamity for work for the day, and I remember walking from the airport until someone found us and gave us a ride, and just even just walking down a dirt road in Gamity, I was absolutely floored by how my body was reacting to being there it felt so incredibly powerful and visceral and spiritual 
Yeah, my <clears throat> like my parents are old hippies, and I, um, my dad like goes for a walk every day, and he's like, I need my forest bath, and it's just like, <laughs> and, and there's you know this isn't like. <laughs> This isn't even pseudoscience at this point. It's, like, proven that time, you know, in nature is just, like, a net benefit to humans. Like, we're still animals, and there's... I don't know. Yeah, but it's hard to put into words. Mm -hmm. And then you also end up sometimes just sounding airy-fairy, and people are dismissive, which is annoying. And I don't... I don't really buy into it being airy-fairy because it is a real and quantifiable thing for me and my body, so I don't really care how I come off. Exactly. Um, And then, like you alluded to, the other bit of Yellowknife drawing you back is this community of lovable weirdos, I guess, Um, and also people who aren't afraid to um, dream outside of the lines you know they color outside the lines and their their ideas and their creations are free to be explored and i think you've shown that with makerspace i think the art scene here as weird and wacky all over the place that it is and it doesn't really have a home per se like a bricks and mortars home it's still thriving and, and furious right so what can you say except like i want to be a part of that yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's the, the thing I am most grateful to Yellowknife of. When I, whenever people ask me, like, why do you love Yellowknife? It's because, like, I think it shows you, like, a, one of my problems is, like, when I live in Victoria, my, my peer group is largely homogenous, you know? It's a bunch of other university hipsters or whatever. <laughs> and then I get up here and, like, there's, you know, we talk about Yellowknife parties where it's, like, a Yellowknife party is just a complete spectrum of people. And it, you see adults, like building snow castles and being eccentric and i I talk about this a lot and because it's just like it it shows you like oh i don't have to grow up to be a certain way like it's i can always kind of be myself Mm -hmm. and that's this town gives you room to do that yeah very much so and um and you know the negative bits being maybe that the gossip mill is just as furious as the weirdos but (laughs) i i i don't know i try to steer clear of that as much as possible, but it's kind of impossible to do. Mm. It's always funny when you hear stories about yourself and you're like, how, what, what? (laughs) How did you think that one up? (laughs) Um, My favorite was, uh, I was hanging out with, what was it, six or seven years ago now, I was hanging out with two uh, two folks who are cousins, and I, I apparently was in a, in a, uh, polyamorous relationship with both of them at the same time. I was like, um, <laughs> no? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you keep thinking that. Cool. Have a nice day. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's so funny, like, running for the office and, like, having that advice article, I have people come up to me like, are you the guy who has big orgies on the boat? <laughs> and I was like, I wish I was, <laughs> like, and then, like, uh, yeah. Did you did you read the article? <laughs> yeah, my people think my life is so much more exciting. I'm like, ha. Ah. Well, but whatever. Yeah. No, I'm I'm boring, and uh, most of my time is spent at home with my dogs. But thanks <laughs> yeah. for thinking I'm yeah. super out there. I guess. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I have like a couple polyamorous friends, and people are like, oh, you must just be having sex all the time. And they're like, who? think i am i got shit to do i got a job you know like it's it's uh, still a normal human stamina here well the, the gossip train is uh 
is insatiable. That's all well, I can say yeah, about that. Yeah, we like to always push. Well, that's I think this is the nature of gossip. It's like it, it gets pushed until it becomes the like most ridiculous version of the story, and then you know, and Yellowknife and runs up against the wall of like what? No, you, the, the person it's about. I've had to refute several uh, rumors around the territorial election with other candidates not yourself not the one that i'm helping but just random things that i know to not be yeah, true know, and i'm like people, what are you what where did that come from? <laughs> yeah it's bad so how is that going for you <laughs> I, it, it, well it honestly just like doesn't bother me i find Fair it very enough. comical i mean i like long ago took on a kind of zero shame policy in my life and if it's not true i find it funny you know i think that's the best way to be yeah um no, it, it is what it is. It's, but I think it's annoying for Pete be, because you know I'm like an exception to the rule, and like I just I I like value privacy rights, but I don't really value my own privacy. Like my life is completely an open book, but I completely understand people who want to keep things private, and it's very annoying in this town how hard that is to do so. Or you know, it's I've seen it. Like people be like, you know, truly upset that something got out because everyone's talking, and it's just like, guys, like you gotta <laughs> shut up. Like you know, especially in this town, telling one person is telling twenty, which is very unfortunate that we are bad at holding people's privacy. I think that might be why I, the people that I click with the most and who I consider my closest friends are my closest friends, is because we do not we're we sh we have that cone of silence. Yeah, it's so. absolutely needed. You mm -hmm. know, because it, and it also just like it. It's harder to open up with someone knowing that they're gonna go blab about it. So then you just like stop telling them things, and it doesn't even have to be like that private. But it's like vulnerability is something we share with you know people we care about, and we don't want that to just be out everywhere in the mm -hmm. world. And it's kind of a shame because I think if people were more vulnerable in general we would have a much richer and more productive society because we would be feel more authentic and be able to do more authentic things. Absolutely. And I, like, I, yeah, <laughs> the power of vulnerability <laughs> is just, it's so important in everything, like, you know, mm -hmm. because it, it just, and I think when you create, like, uh, you know, workplace settings where the, the relationship is just slightly fake, but if you can just go down one level of vulnerability, it's like, you get along with your coworkers better. You're more understanding, like when shit's happening in their life, they feel more supported. They like work, show up to work more. It's just like that's there's like you could you can make a capitalist argument. Like it creates more productive, healthier workers. You know. So and I I can't even remember when we had that moment and got to know each other. It kind of just happened over time. But I was like, all right, Rylan's all right. Yeah, just, <laughs> you know, it makes for a better life. But, uh, I mean, I try to keep that space open and that possibility open everywhere I go, but a lot of people, for whatever reason, aren't there yet, so I respect that as well. Yeah, and there's a balance, because I, um, you know, I, like, as a lawyer, I really value professionalism, and, like, I don't ever want a client coming in and, like, breaching that wall. It's like, mm -hmm. no, sorry, like, I'm here to give you professional advice, and this is the relationship. <laughs> and I want to keep that within those parameters. Um, I think what really drove me mad in the last year or so was the response of men to the Me Too movement was like, what, I can't compliment women in the workplace anymore? I'm like, what? <laughs> 
is, yeah. is that really the takeaway here? It's 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 just be a nuanced and respectful human being and try to react to someone's vulnerabilities in a respectful way. That's all it means, right? It doesn't mean you can't ever talk to women. It doesn't mean you can't say, I like your hair today, so-and-so. It yeah. means don't be a sleazeball. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, you know, I even... I think that's just like it's well it's men getting defensive of, in response to people being vulnerable which is like not what you do you don't get defensive you also show vulnerability or compassion how about that mm -hmm. but there's also this like the the argument it's like a straw man that was being created like oh you can no longer be flirty because you know women have been sexually assaulted it's like what where where what? did you get that that is a very big jump <laughs> yeah it's like <laughs> And no one was advocating for that. Like, you know, flirtiness is a natural human behavior. That's important. It's just like, you also have to respect people's consent, obviously. Yeah, we need to get to a consent culture and we're not anywhere close. It's really depressing. Um, well, now that I'm depressed, <laughs> pick another topic. <laughs> okay, okay. I, I'd like to talk about uh, Burning Man. You oh, were boy. the regional contact for Burning Man for uh, a few years. For a few years, yeah. Um, which is entertaining because... Um, so I went two years in a row, then I became the regional contact. And What's then I, the and regional then, contact? And then I stopped going. <laughs> um, so should we talk about what Burning Man is? Yeah, let's for, start for, with what? Burning Man. Yeah. <laughs> so Burning Man is... <sighs> I guess the, the easiest word to use is festival, but it's not a festival. It's an experiment in community. So every week before the August, no, sorry, the September long weekend, um, <clears throat> I think it's up to like 70 or 80,000 people now. Oh my God. Anyway, so 70,000 people get together uh, and make a city out of nothing in the northern deserts just outside of Reno, Nevada. Yeah. And it's been going on for, I want to say, 30 some years now. And every year it gets bigger. And so basically... Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a temporary experiment in in community. So that people build a city, all that they can all that they bring is what they have for the entire week. So you have to bring water. There's no water available. There's no there's nothing for sale. You bring what you you're living. You bring what you eat. You bring what you have to share. And when it's all said and done, you pack it all up, and nothing that you brought in stays. Yeah. That's that's the, that's basically what Burning Man is. There's a bunch of platitudes and like framework that they say these are our ten principles and they're great. You should look them up. But generally speaking, it's whatever you want it to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's and there's no and money. There's a, and there's Man, no. Like, well, that's not entirely true. You can buy ice and you can buy coffee. I like how they made this. <laughs> good, good priorities: ice and coffee. Well, you don't want your food to go bad yeah. for ice. Fair enough. And it's also a if you're sneaky about it, it's a good way to have water because you can melt the ice and have water. Yeah. And number two, yeah, like, let's face it, nobody wants to get up after a long night of partying and not have coffee and you don't want to make coffee, so you can go buy coffee. Yeah, yeah cool. I, I like that. I like that some <laughs> compromises, too, because it shows they're not like, you know. <laughs> but those are the only two things you can buy. And it's, it's, it's kind of a tableau rasa, so people do a lot of art, people do a lot of music, they make crazy vehicles that play music they offer poems they have 
although I don't think I've ever experienced them. There's there's sexual of proclivities of every choice going in. There's consent is a big thing. If you are not under eighteen, you can't ride this ride, kind of stuff. But there's there's a camp full of kids. You know, yeah, it's 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 a society basically, and it's impermanent, which is makes it have this quality of. And maybe maybe it's a false quality, but it gives it so much more importance in some way. It's it's it, everything you do seems laced with potential and and some sort of significance that you don't really get in day to day life. And I think that's yeah. why a lot of people are addicted to it. Yeah, and and that's not just Burning Man. That's any <clears throat> festival. That, you know, the ephemeral nature of it is kind of has this. It it allows unity because you know that the relationship like is only within this context or whatever and mm-hmm. will end. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's nice. And I, you know, even this folk on the rocks is like all of the staff after we get like post festival blues because it's like you're working as this team to this goal. You obtain the goal, and then you and then oh. and then what? <laughs> yeah, what do we do now? So. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I had been um, part of festival culture before going to Burning Man. I'd been to Shambhala. I helped out with folk on the rocks. I was a board member for one year. Um, but I wouldn't, I don't know, Burning Man is kind of on its own little mission yeah, that I'll, is not really a festival. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, it's, <laughs> there, there's several reasons why I stopped going. No, reason the first was simply, it's expensive to get there, like, both times I drove there and, you know, had to load up my van or my car or whatever, and it's just, it takes money and time and effort and privilege, let's be honest, and... Yeah. I don't know. Part of me kind of started chafing against the fact that it is a really privileged white person thing, and it's a little bit weird that way. Um, Not to say that there aren't other people of other uh, colors and backgrounds at Burning Man, it's just white people are the vast majority. Yeah. So it felt a little disingenuous to want to continue down the path of community building and what that meant to me while not seeing everybody I wanted in my community reflected in the place I was trying to do that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> Nothing, no, and, I, and that's really not a, a slight against Burning Man. It just wasn't my community anymore. Yeah. And I, I, I think about this all the time, you know, and like prioritize the amount of like time and money and effort that like goes into something like that. It's like, well, there's, you know, there's probably better uses, but you know, whatever, you know. Well, you, there's a million critiques about the event and I, I mean, a lot of them have, have uh, value. I mean, I, that that's one critique. Another critique is... So you are spending how much money to burn stuff down and put CO2 into the air and like, what what are you doing? Like, and all the cars that go there, that's how much, how much fossil fuels are you burning, et cetera, et cetera. And you know what? Fair. You can, you can tear it down in a million ways, but I, it did teach me a lot about intentional community. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah. And, and, I am all an advocate for any kind of social experiment that allows people to push kind of the parameters of human experience and then go back to their existence and 
process that and learn something because I think no matter what, I think anyone you sent to Burning Man would learn something. It's true. <laughs> like, I don't know. And, you know, they might learn different things. They might come out hating it, but it's a hell of a learning experience. Cause... And self-reliance is one of those ten principles. And by God, I don't know anybody who doesn't learn more about themselves by going there. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. So, oh. but, uh, yeah. So regional contact just meant that I was um, doing Burning Man adjacent events here in Yellowknife, as you may remember. I don't know if you got here when we were still doing Burn on the Bay. So for, I guess, four or five years we did that. Um, And then, you know, people who who were leading it either had babies or had other priorities, and I think it stopped last year or the year before um but for a while there it was super cool to make a reclaimed wood art structure and burn it during long john it was a lot of fun yeah i've always wanted to do uh a burn on the bay like you know the scene in lord of the rings when they they light the fire (laughs) i'd like to do one from like Deda to the snow castle come out and then we could just have them on like dog island if you dream it you can do it i especially in yellow i I feel like i like that's a you know six of us could get that done i i i would recommend you bringing in cat mcgurk because she was definitely a help when we were doing that here in the back and she's one heck of a person i'll get the the chief to summon the snow king or something you know nice video The only problem with that is, and I will caution you, is that you would have, like, 12 or 14 different places to clean up. Um, that was one of the things we were very fastidious about, was making sure we dug out any nails or debris out of the ice the next day. So that would take you a long time. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps or a Dead North film or something. That there, would be great. There you go. Um, okay, can we... Uh, well, wait, what else do you want to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> um... I guess what the whole Burning Man experience taught me in a roundabout way, and I know I've said it several times, but it is that intentionality of community, and I think it's a large part of why I'm so interested in politics today, which seems weird to say. Why why are you interested in politics? Well, I've always been interested in politics, but I've gotten really, really interested in politics since going to Burning Man and, and understanding how to make your community run as a better one for everybody involved. Yeah, I think about this a lot in that it's it's hard to put these things into words. Like, I talk a lot about curating space. I mean, that's what this podcast is. It allows you to have one-on-ones. I think it's a nice way of curating space. I uh, <clears throat> Doing, organizing festivals, Burning Man, you know, has so much intention and all these little things, they add up. You know, and I was even like at a wedding the other day and I was just like the attention to detail is so insane. And I was just like, oh, that's like a great little idea. Like I should give that to an artist who comes to a festival because like that will make them feel welcome, which like has this trickle effect. Mm-hmm. And then and and you see this like I advocate for this in the private sector all the time. Like there's just like a net benefit to your boss buying you, you know, drinks on Friday or taking you out for dinner because it's like your workplace becomes more cohesive and more productive sure and then i like don't see that at the government level that like you know we've there's we've sterilized a lot of government workplace culture mm-hmm. to which i think is just a, a it's a huge problem and i 
but I don't necessarily have the answers, you know? <laughs> Sounds like you should run for office, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, and I don't even know to what extent that's like a, well, I, I think it is, it's a, it's a leadership problem in like talking about this, but it also seems to be like a bit of a human resources problem. Um, how to like bring community into workplace. So this is where I went with this. No, politics. no, no. I mean, definitely a large part of why I've taken on certain roles this year is because of that community in the workplace that I, that I have and I feel and those relationships with people that I sat down with this past winter when we were all, um, nervous and anxious about the possible strike action um that is why i am now a part of the local yeah and i and perhaps yeah and unions are uh, we don't need to talk about the union but yeah that is like a perfect embodiment of what i think the union's probably most important thing is kind of like building that cohesiveness you know of workers i know a lot of people laugh or scoff at the you know the solidarity thing but it's there for a reason and i have solidarity with my coworkers, and i and i know that that sounds cheesy i know that sounds yeah, cheesy, yeah. but i do what well, <laughs> and, and, yeah. and i'm gonna own it <laughs> and there's just something so nice like when you're working on a project and it's like everyone is genuinely working on this and trying to you know achieve the objective and it's like you feel like you're part of a team i mean that's just humans like that very much and And without that i think a lot of people feel um untethered and unproductive yeah exactly they Mm -hmm. just kind of feel aimless and it's like what's happening which is you know i think an extremely unfortunate thing and then you get people who get into those positions and it's 20 years later and they're just like just anyway it's a sad thing Anyway, all I want to say on that is, uh, you are missed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Still see everyone, because it's yellow, and I feel the other nice thing about community. Within that context, you are missed. Um, (laughs) Okay, perhaps we can talk a bit about burlesque a little. Oh, yes, the I take my money off, or my take my money off for clothes. Yeah. (laughs) Take my clothes off for money. Um, yeah, so everybody who takes part in burlesque, I feel, has a different interpretation. Um, of course, I started out with the big group in town, the burlesque, and that show has, um, definitely a certain intention and a certain feel, and now there's more burlesque troops in town, and each of them have different, um, intentions and feels, and I'm super excited to go see Boolesque in a few weeks, that's gonna be amazing. Um, Such a good name. I know, right? <laughs> um, I and and that's the thing. Like I, I what a when great I, town I, I'm, we have multiple burlesque troops. Right? So cool. I, 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 I'm, I'm hesitating a little bit about talking about it because I want to preface it very strongly with my interpretation of my time in burlesque is probably very different and in fact wildly different from other people's interpretations of their time in burlesque sometimes it's just about being coquettish and um te- the, a one-time thing coquettish yeah um sort of like coy and teasing coquettish i like that yes word. there you go it's, you can expand your vocabulary um but there's there's levels of it right so they're that's what I like about the art form. It can be anything from 
Uh, I'm gonna show you my ankles to I'm gonna show you everything except what's between my legs. And you know what? I love that. I love that there's that wide of a range and that many different interpretations. I see it as sex work adjacent. Um, I don't consider myself a sex worker. I consider myself a very strong advocate for sex workers. I think anybody can do anything they want with their body. Um, but there's some friction, I feel, in the various troops about what that interpretation should be and what it looks like. And so I'm sort of parsing that out right now as a performer and if I want to continue as a performer. <clears throat> but overall, the experience has been amazing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> perhaps can you kind of talk about... Well, to me, the most... So I've talked a lot. That was a mental about, dump, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there, I would say. Uh, what, the, what I would say, Burlesque, is not that I... Have, Actually, I have been in a burlesque show. You have. You were in a burlesque show with me, not <laughs> yeah, directly, we were, but we were yeah. In a burlesque show together. So, um, <laughs> but the thing that I find that I like the most of it, and I find people talk about the most, is kind of this like body positivity that comes out of it. Mm -hmm. This like fighting kind of shame, and this I my from talking to multiple people is they come out like feeling sexier. They come out feeling more positive. Like they come out like generally happy with the experience, which. I, it, you know, to me should be the goal. If you're, if if the culture is creating that, then it's successful. I, but any kind of performance in any medium, you should want to feel positive about. Yeah, I would, I would say. But yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, that's absolutely. Um, <laughs> but um, it's it's strange for me. I'm still dealing with um a lot of body image issues. I think I will for the rest of my life. It's just the in some way the background noise of being a or accepting uh, that I am a woman um, and accepting some of the things that society has put on me as, as someone who identifies as a woman I when I am in the show and when I'm performing in the show I feel like a million bucks you cannot you cannot ask for a better um, visceral high. Yeah. After the show, all of the doubt and self-negating talk floods back for me, and it's it's actually <laughs> it's actually a large part of why I'm considering whether or not to continue as a performer because it is exceptionally hard for me to pull myself out of that hole again. Yeah, that's interesting. It's like, is it? Is the exhibitionist nature of it just like kind of bring it to a yeah bring it all out to the front and then you know not like uh, I don't I don't have an answer to that no know? and I don't either it's something I'm struggling with to this day and it's 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 not a part of the conversation at large and I wonder if it should be because um, it's my experience I don't know if it's everybody's experience if someone performs feels amazing never looks back doesn't ever yeah. doubt themselves I am super stoked for them but that's not been my experience so i i look at photos of myself and performance and and i'm exceptionally judging of myself and it's kind of a toxic place to be well this is the thing i've always found like super hard about 
well, most issues we have with our self-esteem and body image issues being one is that like so many of those are implanted very early like you can tie them to teenage years they're like or earlier yeah exactly and they are they're placed there kind of not like you at the time aren't really aware that's happening it's like a series of you know cultural pressures that get put into place and you can even be an adult sitting here rationally being like i know this is stupid but it's like that it's still <laughs> real you know logic and feeling are exactly. not always and going to is, align <laughs> especially when it comes to self-esteem issues yeah. like it's just I, th I think about this all the time where i'm like okay this is you know logically makes no sense it's like well what is, where does that get me you know like Right brain and left brain need to talk together more frequently for us to actually synthesize the experience. Mm -hmm. And I don't think our culture is there yet. Yeah, and I, well, I think this is, like, one of those things about, like, you know, it's hard to put into words, but, like, this is why art is so important, because so many people find themselves, like, you know, I, I do a lot of my processing through writing. Like, I, mm -hmm. I write, and it's like... Um, it's it's like a right brain left brain coming together you know people who paint and it's like it's a way of processing that we is not really verbal and you're not really re about reasoning and you're not quite sure but it's like very effective <laughs> and i think we all kind of got to try and find that thing you know because it looks different for each of us exactly and it's huh it's so fascinating to, to catch yourself in those moments where you're where you realize you are making those connections and then all of a sudden it's gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, oh crap! I just just had that. Um, okay, well let's let's move through your bio. So oh, for the thanks. listeners, you sent me a little yeah uh, yeah go ahead a, a thing here, and I wanted to. Um, well, actually, can you talk to me about uh? journalism you have a I... degree in journalism from ryerson what <gasps> wanted oh i like this we don't <laughs> so at some point kate you wanted to be a journalist uh, what, uh, what happened to that what happened to that um i, I needed to get paid <laughs> <laughs> oh my god so annoying that we do not pay journalists yeah, yeah. There's a whole lot of um, pay your dues, but not get paid yourself. Um, so yeah, I, I I actually I have very strong feelings about the foundations of why I got into this and and why I think it was not a good fit for me, and it's because. Back in the 90s, I don't know if it's like this to this day. I don't have kids at this age. I don't have kids at any age unless you count my dogs. Um, <laughs> but back in the 90s, we used to tell kids, and definitely this was the messaging to me, you need to go to university and you need to choose what you want to be for the rest of your life when oh, you were so 15. stupid. <laughs> I tell this to people all the time. Like, just go do something and it's not for the rest of your life. Trust me, you're going to change your mind a bunch. And, um, because I, for various reasons, I had less self-esteem than I do today, um, at 15, 16 years old, <laughs> as because I was 15 and 16 years old, um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I know that other people had a whole bunch of ideas of what I would, might be good at, and one of them was journalism. Yeah. So I went to journalism school, and I remember for most of the first year, I cried pretty much every day. 
Um, (laughs) I, I, and I, and I guess it was just because, uh, A, I was far away from home, B, I was in the biggest city in Canada, and C, Dealing with I this was pressure. 17! Yeah, and this pressure of like, <laughs> I'm now going to be a journalist and this is what I'll do with my life. Yeah, kind of exactly. And I mean, intro year, I think, of anybody's undergrad is kind of a pile of horse shit. Yeah. For the most part. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I couldn't name a single course I took. Like, I'm on first year. I don't know. I think I, I took a... Uh, politics, I took. I think I, I did take a politics course and it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, uh, I, what I did and what kept my sanity and what I'm so glad that my, my, you know, lizard brain took over was, uh, after the end of that first year, I went and I spoke to the people at Chart Magazine, which was a magazine, a music magazine back in the day. Um, and I said, hi, can I just come here? on days that I don't have class and do tasks and maybe write some stuff and whatever. And over the following three years, they had me write reviews. They had me go out to shows. They had me interview um, musicians and go to festivals. And I thrived in that. So I was going to school, but my real passion was this unpaid work for a music magazine. And that kept me in the journalism world. I'm doing air quotes. (laughs) Um, Once I graduated, and actually, you know, no offense to Ryerson, I think the fourth year of that program was the one of the best years of my life because you actually put together a project and I decided to go into magazines. So you put together a magazine that goes on to newsstands for sale and it was an amazing experience and I loved it. And I wrote a story about disability and journalism and I absolutely adored it. Yeah. When I graduated, I couldn't find work. (laughs) And then I got, uh, I had a medical experience and I was very despondent because I could couldn't even really move very well. I had to walk around on crutches. So um, that sort of, you know, limited my ability to go ambulance chasing. <laughs> and um, I did do an internship with uh, CBC Sunday, which doesn't exist anymore, but, you know, Evan Solomon, Carol McNeil, uh, during the 2004 election federal election and that was interesting but generally speaking when it comes to journalism hard news journalism we're just not a match i appreciate it i am a news junkie still to this day every day i i wake up and i drink my coffee and i watch last night's national and i love rosie barton to bits (laughs) but There's something lacking in most journalism, and that is the depth of experience and the story that you're telling. And hard news... (sighs) Hard news just doesn't do it for me anymore. Like, the soundbite culture. I can't... I can't... Whenever I am in a place where... uh, Like a hotel room or someone else's house where there's, like a 24-hour cycle news channel, I turn it on for 10 minutes and I want to vomit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I guess I dodged a bullet. That's what I have to say about journalism. I, uh, okay, that's fair. <laughs> um, there, there's something about the, like, 
soundbite journalism, which is it's just like it feels like more noise, you know, and it's like, why are we creating all this noise without any underlying? I mean, this is why I love long form everything. You know? Sure. <laughs> Conversation journalism, because it's like it's just noise that goes into your brain and then you think about it and then it flies out. Like, yeah. you know, a, a good piece of journalism, like allows you to think and then changes your actions, you know, yes. in the world. Definitely. But unfortunately to be in the position where you are a journalist writing those kinds of stories or telling those kinds of stories, you have to put in your dues and the shitty news bite culture for a very long Absol- time. And absolutely. I just was not willing to do that. Yeah. And it's a slog and you're underpaid and mm-hmm. it's in an industry that's, you know, rapidly dying and struggling to, you know, find people willing to pay for news. Yeah. So. Which is definitely distressing for me. The fact that we live in a democracy that is losing its checks and balances. Uh, yeah, like I believe the single biggest thing we can do is like I'm gonna go back to policy is like create local journalism funds, mm-hmm. allow nonprofit entities to emerge and run, you know, here community newspapers again. Like why don't we have community newspapers? money um, exactly and it's like you know we're not $75,000 a year there's your base funding you can hire one reporter in the community and do community newspapers then there should be a larger pool like investigative journalists you know can access and spend six months like really doing a tips and diving into things that are not the you know I recognize CBC as a couple staff doing that but like mm-hmm. it needs to mm-hmm. not just be CBC in sure. the game well, and I mean, I know a lot of people have a lot of differing opinions on Cabin, and, you know, full disclosure, I have a music show on Cabin, I'm friends with the folks at Cabin, but I am exceptionally grateful for Ollie and his crew of, a growing crew of reporters, Absolutely. because yeah. they are doing that community journalism, and it's not all doom and gloom, sometimes they write about puppies, and I like that. <laughs> they, uh, they are just a model of what exactly journalism needs to look like in the future. I'm, one of the issues is that, like, the reason Cabin is what it is is because it's funded by Ollie's workaholism and, you know, yes. never-ending ability to just read 40,000 word reports. (laughs) And I thank him for that on a regular basis, both in person and on Patreon. (laughs) Exactly. Same. It's just like, I don't... So many things, like, you know, I don't know where we would have been in that strike without Ollie. Like, I don't know. (laughs) Just lost, confused. He's just... I think even during this election, his coverage, the amount of knowledge that per- Anyways, I could talk Yes, about. we could talk about Ollie forever, but, like, get him on this podcast, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> talk about work-life balance, maybe. Uh... <laughs> um, but no, that's a model that is amazing. And, and, you know, CKLB to the same extent. CKLB has been, you know, like, here for years, is found fundamental in many of our communities. People are still listening to radio in our communities, so, like, I just, we need to, like, view those institutions as institutions that are fundamental to our democracy, like, you know. I cannot disagree. I just can't be a person. <laughs> yeah, I'm not asking you, I'm, I'm not going to work there, Okay, perhaps we can... Uh, so you also, we're going to just jump to your next yeah. degree, have a Master of Information Studies. I do. So, like, the nerdiest of all masters, for Shush. sure. 
So when I was um, recovering from my health issues um, after ditching Toronto finally, um, or at least I thought finally, um, I came back to Yellowknife and I worked a bunch of jobs. I did the Yellowknife 20-something experience. I did the hustle. So I had several part-time jobs. Um, I actually did work for CJCD News for a while, and I think that was the nail in the coffin for journalism <laughs> for me because I and God bless everybody including yourself if you were ever a criminal defense lawyer but I I had the courthouse beat and four months of that killed my soul so yeah yeah I, I would say my brief stint as a criminal defense lawyer is enough to kill it kills my belief in the justice system doing yeah. air quotations sure 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 yeah. But, uh, yeah, so I was getting paid, I think it was $12 an hour to cover two major trials that were happening that summer, both of which were extremely violent and um, the details of which just made my stomach turn. Um, so that was that was it for me. So I ended up moving more into jobs like, uh, I think I did some brief retail stints. I was a executive director of an, of an NGO, Canadian Parents for French, for a little bit, and I ended up working as a library clerk, um, and really liking it. That's great, And, um, thankfully, I love the library. <laughs> yeah, the public library in town is, um, an underused gem. I, I had a really good experience. A lot of people, um... A lot of people have a lot of feelings about the library, but I think libraries just generally across Canada are more than just places to get books. They're places to take part in programming. They're places that are safe, warm places should you need one. And I really stress to people who say our downtown is in shambles that, you know, the library is a safe place for people who need a warm place to sleep sometimes and that's okay public space is rapidly disappearing (laughs) please (laughs) fundamental Um, that we have libraries yeah so i got really your boat is rocking (laughs) i got really um passionate about public libraries and decided you know what i'm gonna go back to school I'm going to suck it up and <laughs> and do another degree. So I went to U of T and pursued that master's. And in the in that process and in summer studenting, summer studenting for the GNWT, um, sort of focused on archives, and that's how I ended up at the museum for eight years. Do you want to know more about what a master's in information studies is? Yeah, I kind of... So there's, there's master's of library studies? Is that... Is that it's basically that? the same thing, right? Okay. So, um, I think U of T, as I was leaving, just changed it into master of information, which sounds so friggin' stupid. But anyway, um, it's basically you're learning the skill set around um, organization and searching and... Um, uh, taxonomies of information organization, basically. So 
for someone like me who had that journalism background, and actually when I was a journalism student, I loved going to the library and doing that research. So you are helping people find, um, if it's libraries, um, books, articles, newspapers, magazines, whatever. Yeah. And if it's archives, uh, it's original historical material. So things that are unpublished and how we allow the public access to that through search engines and describing that material and providing information as a whole as a service as a public good yeah i also like i think it, it's probably one of it's a very interesting area of work because it's probably becoming even more important as i think you know we all people always viewing libraries as just books but it's like mm -hmm. no we're actually entering like a world of just mass data of every type that, yeah, if not, like, catalyzed and accessible is, you know... What I like to tell people, and especially when I was still in the field, was you cannot Google everything. You just, it's just, it's not all online, and yeah. it's never going to be, because digitizing everything is impossible. Yeah. Um, and everything that's online is not necessarily everything you need. So, and nor do we want just Google. Like, you know, why do we only have one search engine controlling the entire way we search everything? You know? Right. And I know lots of people that refuse to use Google, so yeah, there you go. But no, anyhow, I, 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 I digress. I'm not all that far. I like, I like Google. <laughs> but but you know. no, it's just um, a large part of why I got into journalism at the get-go and a large part of why I continued down this path with the master's degree is just that information is a fundamental human right and access to it and um, freedom, freedom of, etc. So knowledge have, since I was a little kid, reading and understanding the world around me through the printed word has always been fundamentally like core strength and belief of mine that this must be accessible for everybody uh, literacy is a big thing for me so all of these things came together and that's why i went into that master's stream um <clears throat> all right, well jumping along <laughs> then you worked at the library for uh, eight the years the nwt archives yeah, so oh. I worked at the public library before I went to school. Oh, sorry, I meant the That's museum, okay. is what I meant to say. Yeah, is the, yeah, archi yeah. the archives is distinct from the museum, or is that...? Uh, it's within the museum, okay. so it's housed in the museum, and it's uh, part of that um, building and um, structure. Um, so it's part of ECE. Just sorry. looking at someone? Well, oh, there's uh, smoke coming up from the island, I was just wondering. Oh, I, someone's probably chimney. Uh, fair enough. It's gone now. Um, yeah, so the archives is a part of education and cultural employment in part of Prince of Wales Northern Heritage Center, and is, it's fundamental... Is Prince of Wales also part of ECE? Yes, or does like... yes, okay. yes it is. It's not a crown corporation, it's, it's part of the department. Um, it's the Culture and Heritage Division. Hmm. Ooh. <laughs> and, um... Where was I going with this? Uh, so the archives itself is um, mandated in legislation to um, keep the historical records of the government of the Northwest Territories. So that's a large part of what I did. Also, uh, it may, in the legislation, doesn't have to, but it may uh, collect um, records of private individuals, corporations, historically significant people, thing, places, things, etc. Yeah. Um, so photographs, journals, um, 
I think one of my favorite things that were, was in the archives uh, was a cartoon uh, that someone drew when they were sent to Edmonton to, for TV um, uh, service. What am I trying to look for? They were treatment, TV treatment. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and that uh, person's uh, experience of being in a big city hospital, but being from a small northern town sort of thing. That was interesting to me. So yeah, just the, this, the running thread throughout my whole life is that I'm interested in people's stories and the stories in the archives are amazing. Yeah. So that was a really great place to be as someone who is interested in storytelling. Yeah, I've, uh, I'd like to spend a lot more time in the archives. My, uh, my friend Mark Wendell was up here and he did this like uh, 10 items or something and he like found items in the archives and wrote a story about each of them. Mm -hmm. And I really like that. I liked, there's just so many kind of hidden gems in there that... But they're not hidden, Ryland. Uh, well, that, <laughs> Don't well, say this that. Is, this ties into <laughs> journalism. That, that, or that's, like, that's why when people are like, oh, all the dusty old things in archives, I get really frustrated because we work really hard to make sure that they're in the best possible, like, climate-controlled environments possible. <laughs> but it's how do you, like, continue, you know, there's a whole other aspect of just the, you know, archiving, but no, like making sure there's mediums that pull them out and translate them to the public you know, mm -hmm, in an mm -hmm, mm -hmm. accessible and interesting way which is well part of journalism and part of just i don't know mm -hmm. i think one of the my favorite things that i did before i left was um my friend Nijitsel norbert um she's moved back to uh i think it's a Nuvik now but before she before i left the job um i was able to find um some videos that were um, taken in the 80s of her grandparents um, doing, um, I can't even remember if it was a tanning event or what it was, but it was, um, it was something at a, maybe it was a fish camp, anyhow, um, and I was able to find those videos for her before I left, and she was just floored that she knew that they existed, but she didn't know where, and it's yeah, like, I was able yeah. to hook her up with that before I left that job. Yeah, that's great. Uh, the information keeper great great job oh thanks <laughs> um, all right kate i think we're about an hour here i was gonna wrap it up but yeah. if you have anywhere else you kind of wanted to go any other notes you wanted to hit on let me let me check the time here we're at uh oh yeah just over now yeah Thanks. no i mean that went by really fast i hope it was interesting for whoever's listening but uh keep doing this man i'm i'm really excited that you're maybe i'll You're put them all in the archives one day actually <laughs> <laughs> the ryland johnson collection <laughs> yeah, point of time of, you know yellow knife in 2018 2019 there you go um okay can you do us a favor and ring the ship's bell thank you for boarding the scandamania i enjoyed that a lot that was better than your first one <laughs>